All right. So, Corey, this is actually uh, the question that you're asking is a, is about the four the the eight jhanas. That was about your question. You mentioned eight jhanas. Yeah. Right. Yes. Okay. Uh, or the full, or the whatever you have experience with, and like, I'm curious about what they are and how to get into them and the benefit of them. Why is it worth the effort? Uh, that's pretty much it. All right. Well, you also mentioned about form and formless jhanas. All right. And uh, in that way, we could say the form jhanas are those that exist and the formless jhanas are those that do not exist in a numerical sequence like that. OK, so let's start with um, enough of the beginning of it is, is that the Buddha himself on his journey when he was still a bodhisattva went to uh, several different teachers that were teaching things like that that we got our language from. One is Alakalama and the other one was Rama Ramaputta because Rama was dead already and only his son was there, but none of the people who could do, uh, who were students of Rama, um, uh, could do it. But Rama Ramaputta, his son, told the Buddha before he was the Buddha all about it, and the Buddha did that too. And then they uh, well, if you can do this as well as all of these other things within the mind, then please be our teacher. And uh, Saki and Gautama at that time refused to become the teacher. I mean, he had a regular a, a, a made sangha right there. And not only that, but the indication is, is that this was actually quite early in his career. Maybe about halfway, and when I say career, I'm talking about those six years between the time that he was 29 leaving the palace and the time that he was 35. Okay, and it was in that time frame where the Buddha was experimenting with this stuff. And uh, he recognized that that's not going to answer the main question that I am asking, Dukkha, Dukkha Naroda. And the reason for that was, is that when people come out of those states, because you can't stay in those states, if you stayed in some high jhana above the fourth, whatever it is, you're going, if you do ever come out of it, you'll probably come out of it in the morgue or in a coffin. Because everybody will think that you're dead. Your pulse is so slow and the breathing is so slow. People go into comas like that. So you can think, in fact, that these states that we're talking about is coma-like. And you wouldn't want to live your life that way. But the idea in those days was is that if you can get the mind into those kind of states, then you're good to go, you're enlightened or whatever. And yet when anybody who could do those states came out of it, they came back into dukkha. And so the Buddha gave up on jhanas altogether. In fact, he uh, dismissed them. And later when he picked them back up, he did so reminiscing about how he had dismissed them completely. 
But after he left that um, group with Rama Ramaputta, he went over to um, Naganataputta, who is also known as Mahavira. That in fact the Jain clan had already started or was in existence, and the Buddha joined to that group. And so to say that the Buddha's uh, Sangha is the oldest in the world is not quite correct because the Jains have been continuously ex in existence and the Buddha was in their group before he started his own. So that's an interesting side point. Now, what did they do? Well, they did um, austerities fornication, uh, not fornication, <laughs> sorry, wrong word, um, uh, self-flagellation and other things like that. Um, now, the advantage of that is can you test yourself? How much pain can you stand and just be able to handle it? And there's a lot of experiments where that's going on. I'll give you a couple of them, the, the, uh, the Italian Mafia requires the people who are joining the inner group to hold their right hand out while a piece of paper that they have signed in their own blood is burned. They have to hold it there. The Yakuza in Japan will cut one of the fingers off. Yeah, you know. <laughs> okay. So what's, uh, oh, quick question about asceticism, because that one also interests me. So the how asceticism is practiced is about like maintaining a kind of a jonic kind of state of mind where you're happy and not bothered while you do the fasting and so it's not just about doing self-flagellation or fasting or uh ascetic type practices it's about something Learning else to control the mind oh so you have to like do jhana type practices and I haven't gotten there yet, now have I? Not going in that direction right now, okay? That's a good point, yeah. So, I mean, all right, we'll continue back on the thing. It just all right. has always been... So, what happened was, is that the Buddha, actually having gone and did very well, or probably the best at the time, in the jhanas, he then went into the austerities, and he decided that those two were not uh, going to answer his question. And he was very good at it. One of the things that he practiced was not eating much. That's why we have these statues around that some people call the, the, uh, the fasting Buddha. Buddha didn't fast. Gautama fasted. <laughs> so... He was very good at it to the point that he almost killed himself. Mm -hmm. And that, when he almost killed himself, gave him the understanding he's got to do something. This is not working. Okay. And so that's when um, he reflected. Crawling, basically, the story is, is that he fell into a creek or a brook and he couldn't get out. He had to really struggle because he was so weak. He couldn't get out of the, uh, the creek. And so when he did get out of the creek, he says, this austerity stuff is killing me, but it's not getting me any happier. And so this is when he reflected upon 
the story of the rose apple tree. Now, a lot of this stuff that I'm telling you, by the way, comes from both Sutta number 26 and Sutta number 36. Both of them because there's a lot of duplication and copying in there about this story. So. Then we come across the story of the rose apple tree, which was not in the Sutta number 30, uh, 26. It's in Sutta number 36, I think. So the story then is, is that he reflected upon when he was a teenager or when he was a young guy studying. Uh, and by the way, the side point is Kandana. Kandana. Uh, was his trainer, his teacher as a child. He had a Brahmin who schooled him, teaching him how to read and to write and to memorize the Vedas and all of that kind of stuff, as well as practicing jhanas. So he was already skilled at it before he left the palace. And so he comes back and he recollects that he was sitting under the shade of the rose apple tree experimenting with first jhana while he was watching his uh his dad uh sukadama um plow in a ceremony a ceremonial plowing for once a year and uh a young guitar uh siddhartha goes and sits down and gets himself into a really pleasant state and so years later he comes out of that creek and sits down and he reflects why have i been afraid of the uh, of the sensual pleasures of the first jhana they are not in fact sensual pleasures that are mental that sensual pleasures like going to the brothel going to the bar getting drunk winning the lottery um buying a new car wrecking a new car all of that kind of stuff is the sensual pleasures. We're looking for pleasures um, to make us feel good. So basically that's the outside world. And that he said then, well, why am I afraid of this first jhana? That this seems to be the path. So what he did was is that um, <clears throat> He started to eat again. The first meal they say was that he had rice milk with with milk after having so little food. I imagine he popped a big belly right that, that day. And so um, his friends uh, didn't like that he had broken that uh, uh, um, regimen that they were on. And so they left him there in in this area, Bodh Gaya. So he was already in that area, and so that's where he stayed. And after getting some uh, health back, he sat down and reflected upon all of these skills that he had had. I mean, he was really an outdoorsman. He really was an outdoorsman, more so than any of the uh, uh, outdoorsmen that we think of <clears throat> today with all of their equipment. He was out there with nothing and was able to handle himself. And so um, he sat down and he started reflecting through the skills that he had and came to understand that these jhanas, these higher jhanas that we will talk about shortly, were in fact 
the way that the mind worked. And so he kind of superimposed Paticca Samupada over the jhanas so that we could actually understand what was the process. But ultimately the goal that we have to look at is not that we can get the mind in some sort of state. And it's certainly not true that we're going to be able to live our lives if it's in that kind of a state. That is something that's temporary, is not visited often. And let us say that um, if you go to a, here's the thing, if you go to a movie, the movie's got a point, it's got a, begin, um, a beginning, a middle, and an end. Now, if that movie is an hour long, which is most of the features back in the 1930s and 40s, most of the features were, were short. But occasionally they did have long movies, like the um, uh, Gone with the Wind. So what they would do is they'd put an intermission in there. So that people could go to the toilet, take a break, and all of that kind of stuff, because the movies got so long. And we're talking about now a three-hour movie. There have been some movies that are four and five hours, and if you look at maybe a series like, um, oh, Game of Thrones, each one of those episodes is an hour, and they've done what eight years at eight sessions each. So you've got like, uh, gosh. 70 or 80 hours and no one is going to sit and watch 80 hours of um gone with the wind or excuse me of game of thrones why would you expect someone to stand sit there for the next 80 hours in one of these john estates where you don't even have a villain <laughs> okay there's no action going on so the the clear and obvious point is is that we want to be in whatever high jhanas there are long enough to get the point to understand and there's several different ways of doing that one is to go in quickly and back out go in take a so uh snapshot come back out go back in take another snapshot come back out go in and take another snapshot come back out and then start putting this stuff together to see exactly how this stuff fits together the other way is to go in stay there for a long time come out get all screwed up again and then go back into it and stay in it a long time until you get beginning to understand how the mind works okay cool. so now that we've got that framework let's go back to the point about it really doesn't matter how high into some jhanas there are and you know that westerners we love large numbers gosh if there were 99 jhanas we'd love it there's only what eight <laughs> okay so we begin to understand that maybe the buddha was in that too and he was looking for the ultimate goal the ultimate limit and what he did come to understand that oh no let us say that we need to develop some basic skills that get us into a state that's free from dukkha and then maintain that and that's the first jhana because the first jhana is defined as sukha and sukha is defined as the exact opposite 
of dukkha. So the first jhana is, in fact, that state where there everything that is experienced as pleasant because we've been able to remove all of the unwholesome, all the unwholesome thoughts. And those may even be un, uh, removing the thoughts about, let us say, getting a mosquito bite. Can you get a mosquito bite? Can you stump your toe and be happy? Or do you have to stump your toe and feel bad about it? Can the body get sick and you're happy? Or when the body gets sick, do you feel bad about it? When you get fired from your job, can you feel good about it? Most people don't. When they get fired from their job, that's almost like the life's biggest tragedy. I remember because I got fired from a very high paying job at one time and it nearly killed me. Best thing that ever happened, but it took me four months to figure that out. Okay. Well, from that, why couldn't I have spent that four months happy? Because I got fired. All right. It was because I created my own unhappiness. So here's where the whole point now of the teaching of the Buddha lies. When we can add the Sutta number 36 into the Eightfold Noble Path and specifically the Four Noble Truths and specifically about the second noble truth. Because here where things are tied together is in that second noble truth. What is the cause? What's the sequence of events? What is it that happens in the mind that takes us from being in consciousness, in reality, into some dark hell that we've created for ourselves? How does that happen? What's the sequence of events? And that's where the Buddha comes up with this teaching of Paticca Samuppada, which is nothing but an expansion of the second noble truth. Now, we can also start putting some of these jhana factors right there on this list of Paticca Samuppada. It's sitting right there for us if we would see it. Okay, this, this is what was so brilliant about the teachings of Bhikkhu Dasa was that he could all, uh, even though the clues are there in the suttas, that somehow people had gotten misguided um, with that, especially when things like the Vasudhi Magha came along, to where the reality is, is that the jhanas match and overlay uh, with the Paticca Samuppada, which means that if you're in a particular jhana state, that means that you're capable of seeing that level of how the mind works. Mm -hmm. And if we can visit it for a short time and then visit it again for a short time and begin to see how the mind works, then we can begin to do things when we need it most, which and when we would need it most, I'm talking now going back to sati, which is the factor of the path that gets everything going. The factor of the Eightfold Noble Path is Santi, to wake up, take a look at what you're doing, make a change, and congratulate yourself. Those four items practiced within the Anapanasati framework brings the mind into the first jhana with the sukha, the pity, the applied, the sustained, and being able to stay in it for a while. 
And that's the way that we want to begin to live our lives. Why? Because when the mind is in the first jhana, it may not be as complicated and as sophisticated as it needs to be. But the reality is, is can you keep the mind in the first jhana? How long can you sustain it? Can you go around remembering when you're not in the first jhana and break yourself right back into it? This is the way of the practice of the Buddha, and every generation, every one of us, in diapers even, we learn to count, knowing that somehow or another, higher numbers are better. Okay, so let us say that the bus stop is only one block from here, and we go in that direction. But as a kid, we have the idea, oh, if I walk two blocks, then it's better. Well, we walk past, past the bus station a block. Now I'm going to continue another block. Maybe I'll just walk until the next bus stop. But if I had stopped and waited at the first bus stop, I would have been able to be easygoing and happy. And that first bus stop would have been all that's necessary. And here I am, I'm talking about a story that was real for me at 10 years old. Here I am walking past this bus stop on to the next bus stop. And here the bus comes right by me. (laughs) (laughs) And I don't get the bus because I'm in the wrong place for it. Okay, so this is a way that we can think of the jhanas now as the right place to stop and rest. And as we do that, we can begin to see more clearly a block or two ahead. In fact, we can visit it easily short times. This is why there is a distinction between real jhanas and vipassana jhanas. Where really what they talk about with the vipassana jhana. Oh, Robert, I'm glad to see you join us back again. I hope the dogs are all straightened out. Yeah, dogs are straightened out. And um, I had to remove some guest users. So now I'm back. Mm Mm-hmm. Good. So Corey is asking about Jonas. And so we're giving a kind of um, an expose on that. You've already heard a lot of it. So hang in there with us. And right now we're talking about that... uh, the mind and how the mind works is connected to the Paticca Samapada and the sequence of events. So basically what we're saying is, is that as a sequence of events, Paticca Samapada starts here, goes through this, circles around in here for a while, continues on into feelings, into bad feelings, into dukkha, is the way that the mind works. And when we can begin to see how it works, that doesn't mean that you have to spend, let us say, three hours in a movie when the whole synopsis could have been said in 10 statements. And you got enough out of the movie, you know, you could do, you can see a clip. That in fact, that's one of the problems with movie clips is when you've seen the clip, you've seen the whole movie. Why go to the movie? The clip was enough. All right, so let's look at Vipassana jhanas in the sense that we can see how the mind works, even though we're not sitting there 
at that particular bus station all the time. We can see it. Just like uh, with computers, you know that we can take various photographs of something and put those composites together so that we can get a 3D and sometimes even complete three-dimensional move around because we've gotten just a few photos. And this is the way that we really want to approach it in the sense that we do not need to dwell and stay for hours and hours or even long periods of time in these higher states. That what we want to develop is getting the mind into a really nice state and be able to keep it there, to keep those hindrances out of the mind. So that we can go around living a life that's joyful and happy all the time. Or maybe that's not quite possible, but what we can do is we can get out of it. When we see, oh, grumpy, here we are grumpy. Oh, somebody started this video and I got grumpy, but I'm not grumpy now. I can come right back out of it. Okay, how long do you stay in grumpy is a much, much better question to ask yourself than what is the eighth or the ninth jhana? <laughs> Can I see my grumpy and come right back out of it? That's what we really need to train for. That there is no real value in those really, really high states except for perhaps one thing and that <laughs> and that is is that there is an end to it that in sutta number 111 it actually makes that as the theme or the topic of the sutta when it is saying that um first off saraputta got himself into the first jhana easy enough probably because he had already come from some spiritual practice someplace that he was already skilled in jhanas. Okay, so within a fortnight, now the way that the sutta starts is that it says immediately, far from unwholesome states, far from uh, secluded from um, unwholesome things, Sariputta entered and abided into the first jhana with uh, a way that they talk about it with rapture and pleasure born of seclusion of the hindrances and we apply the mind and sustain the mind so in that state where we are secluded from the hindrances and we have joy and that feeling of accomplishment now what we do with that time is we start looking at how can I stay in this state isn't this isn't this breath a nice one? And we keep practicing to apply the mind to the wholesome and sustain it there. This is what the first jhana is. Now, immediately what the Westerner and many, many Asians want is as soon as they get into this first jhana, they say, hot diggity dog, I got this one, what's next? And the answer to that is any jhana that you get higher than this is going to be very tenuous. Because you don't really have the skills developed because you can't apply the mind to sustain it in this happy state. But that's the first thing. OK, now in this happy state, let's go and look at Patita Samapada and see what that is. Now, we won't go into great detail of the um, 
all 12 steps of dependent origination or the, the poly, like a jiva, sankara, venia, um, uh, nama rupa, uh, salyatana, pasa, uh, vedana. And then from veda, upadana, tanha, upadana, um, bhava, jati, dukkha. That's the whole sequence in Pali. So why do we care about this? Well, here's that point about the first jhana. If you are able to get yourself into the first jhana, that means you now have control over your feelings. That's halfway there. That's the home point. Right in the middle of Paticca Samapada is the Vedana. And here in the first jhana, while we're in the first jhana, we are actually controlling the feelings wisely. And Bhikkhu Buddhadasa talks about this in the sense of wisdom at the point of contact. That if you have wisdom at whatever it is that contacts you with wisdom, you can choose how you're going to feel. So a sharp pain in the nose, I can handle that. Whatever it is, if we have wisdom when we come in there, in other words, sati, wake up, look at what's going on is the wisdom and have the ability to convert it from a bad moment into a good moment. And that's the first jhana. And that's Paticca Samapada in the sense of being able to control our feelings. Wisdom at the point of contact. And we have in the first jhana already cut Paticca Samapada in half. Because the second half is all about the unwholesome based upon the ignorant feelings of liking, not liking, and confusion. Mm. Now we're working with wisdom, and we're going to, with wisdom, choose to feel good. I mean, if you could choose to feel whatever way you wanted to feel, Corey, would you choose to feel bad? I definitely wouldn't choose to feel bad. Would you feel, would you choose to be angry? Or does anger just come up? Uh, anger just comes up. Okay. Would you choose to feel grief? Sometimes, maybe a little bit. You know, I'd, I like the spike, but I don't like the long-term negative of it, right? So I- All right. So I you do. Grief, I don't want to stay in the anger. Right, exactly. So there may be some short-term benefits that, in fact, there are times when we need to make a point. And the best way to make a point is with the energy and the effort that it takes to make a point. This is possibly true with kids. I've got students sometimes. In fact, the, uh, the story that I can tell you with that was Zeruba Ken, who was uh, Goenka's teacher. He comes out of the meditation cell and everybody standing around can hear that he's in there yelling. And he comes out of that room with a great big smile on his face doing this while I told him. <laughs> and what it was was is that the student was not following directions and becoming obnoxious. And the uh, um, Uba Ken just let him have it. <laughs> he used anger to to point it out, but it was anger that he chose to use 
rather than anger that he had to use because he had no other choice. Hello, Mitchell. Good to see you. Hello. Okay. Today we are talking about how many jhanas. Ooh, fun topic. <laughs> okay. And what we have come through now uh, as a as a recap is is that after many many years, six years in fact, not so many, uh, of practicing jhana and practicing austerities, the uh, Siddhartha Gautama decided that there was got to be something else. He had a burning question, a burning idea, how to get rid of dukkha. How can we stop being miserable? And he found that people who were practicing the jhanas, because he could practice them better than he was, they still were subject to dukkha. And the, the guys who were doing the austerities, they were even more so. And then the Buddha, after that, when he uh, left, he decided finally to, uh, in recollection, that when he was a child, he practiced the first jhana, and now he's asking the question, why, sitting under the rose apple tree, why am I now afraid of the pleasures of first jhana? And then he recognized that the sensual pleasures that everybody is seeking, going shopping, going to fancy restaurants, buying things that they don't need, having a wardrobe full of clothing, all of that kind of stuff does not bring happiness, but it does fulfill sensual desires. And he said, why am I afraid of this this uh, pleasure that I have in the first jhana? Because it's really not the sensual desires. He recognized that he had made a mistake and couldn't tell the difference between sensual desire and pleasure. Mm -hmm. Most people can't either. So making that distinction for yourself is going to be very, very useful so that you can tell the difference between being in a state of pleasure and wanting to be in a state of pleasure, looking for something to give you that pleasure. So first jhana then is the way and that the first jhana then also by having sukha and piti or uh, piti sukha in the Pali, <clears throat> it would be the rapture and pleasure born of seclusion, which means now <clears throat> that we get ourselves into a state of pleasure. The Pali Dictionary actually defines sukha as safe, secure, comfortable, and satisfied. Those are the four words, safe, secure, comfortable, and satisfied. And then on top of that, the Sama Sankapa, which is the next item of the Eightfold Noble Path, is the congratulations. It is the confidence. It is the, well, I can clean out my mind. I can do this. And those four things together will, will allow one to come back into the first jhana lickety split. Now, that ability to come back into the first jhana lickety-split means that we've already got some skills going, sitting around, ready to go. It doesn't matter what it is. If you forget to apply the skills you've got, you're not going to do a good job. That's especially true in boxing. If you forget to put your hands up like that when those fists are coming, 
you're going to have a, <laughs> a problem. <laughs> you're going to get that fist in the face. But if you can remember to do this, then you're going to be safe. So that's why uh, in martial arts, they practice things over and over and over and over again to get that stuff quick. Because that's what we're going to be using with Petita Samapada. Because basically, if you can say that things are a sequence of events in time, then that means that a whole lot of stuff that we cannot see, but we can see what's happening at this point, meant that we weren't sharp enough or fast enough to see what caused that. And we weren't fast enough and sharp enough to see what caused that. So this is basically what we mean by developing that first jhana so that it really is sharp and fast. Because then we can see the way that the mind works. And we do not have to dwell in these higher jhanas to get that sharp and fast. That in fact, many people want those higher jhanas so bad that they don't get very good at it. They, they, they have a wobbly foundation with the, because they don't have the first jhana developed well. But the development of the first jhana is more valuable as we live our life day to day, as things come up. That's the real value of the first jhana. Being able to do the higher jhanas is kind of a, let's say, a way of pleasantly structuring one's time. And I say it like that specifically because that's the way that the Buddha talked about it. He said those guys who were sitting in the third and the fourth jhana are at least can say that they're abiding in pleasure. It's a pleasant abiding. But that's about all it is. And if you are in that pleasant abiding, laying down out in your yard in that pleasant abiding, and a neighbor sees you and get and calls 911, the meat wagon will come pick you up and you'll be in the morgue because they can't move. They think that, you know, they'll start hooking all kinds of electronic equipment up and you don't even care. You know they're doing it and you don't give a flying rip because you're so happy already. But when you come out of that state, you may have to deal with some issues. So it's better not to go do that kind of stuff out in your front yard. You need to get into seclusion if you're going to spend that much time in it. But we don't need to. It's not part of the goal. It's just a pleasant abiding. What really is the goal is, is can you stay in the pleasant abiding of the first jhana? How much of the time? How many mind moments are you going to get stuffed up? Okay, so now that we've given this context, let's go ahead and talk about all nine of them, shall we? Okay, uh, though the Western tradition is in fact all eight because of the way that they read suttas like 119, sutra 119, which is a Dhammakaya Nupassana uh, sutta, uh, mindfulness of the body. It, by the way, this sutta very much mirrors the, the sutta number 10, the Satipatthana sutta, for the body section, and then it goes into a very deep, detailed understanding of the four jhanas. In the suttas, there are four. 
only four. They are listed as one, two, three, four. The first jhana has these features. The second jhana has these features. The third jhana has these features. And the fourth jhana has these features. And once you get those features, you've got very few features left and a mind that's sharp enough that it can now do the investigation of the stuff in Paticca Samuppada that's on the other side of feelings. The stuff that happens before feelings happen. Okay, and this is why the word perception is so commonly used. Where is it used? Well, there's either perception or non-perception. There's nothingness. There's infinite, what they call infinite. I got to stop and, and uh, complain a moment. <laughs> In the time of the Buddha and for centuries, dozens of, well, at least five centuries after that, there was no concept of zero in any mathematics anywhere. And the word infinite always has to do with division by zero. Okay. That's what it actually means. Infinity means there's no end to it once you can't, uh, when you divide it into so small pieces that there's nothing left. How many nothingness do you have? You have an infinite amount of nothingness. That's calculus for you. I just gave you a, a, a lesson in calculus. So it's an absolute bad translation to talk about it as infinite consciousness. What it actually is talking about is consciousness that is no longer bound up. It doesn't mean that it's infinite. It means that it's just not attached, not bounded, yes. not connected. Well, what is the consciousness connected to? It's connected to perception. Hmm. That if it were raw consciousness and only consciousness, you could not know that you had consciousness until you perceived consciousness. That's the point where they say neither perception or non-perception is there comes a point in the mind when you only know that you're conscious, but that's all you know, because that's where the mind is staying. In other words, it does not allow the, the perception to grab that consciousness and twist it around with all the crap that we've already got in the mind called Sankara to come up with something new. That in fact, if you understand that sequence of events in the mind, it goes like this. We'll use the eyes for it. I see. Let us say that I see someone dressed in a particular way, a costume or something. I see that person. I see it with my mind. And then uh, with the con not see it with the mind, but see it with consciousness. And then... I recognize the clothing that they're wearing. Okay. It may be Sikh's clothing. It may be the habit of a nun in the Catholic Church's clothing. It could be any, any different kind of clothing. The point is, is that I recognize that clothing. That recognition of the clothing that they're wearing is called perception. I perceive the clothing that they've got it because I know what kind of clothing it is. And I do that by making an image of it in the mind and them dressed in that way. And then the real ignorance part comes in because I know the clothing, I know the person. 
I know who that is. I can judge this book by its cover. That's what we do in the mind. So by seeing that clothing, we know who it is. And that's the Salyatuna. We've made up a story about something that we know very little about, but we put a whole lot of our own past into that story. And that story that we tell ourselves is the Salyatuna that contacts us to give us feelings, which means when we're practicing meditation correctly to get ourselves into the first jhana, we're actually deciding to change the kind of data that we're feeding into perception so that we come up with a much more wholesome Salyatana that contacts us so that we have better feelings. Well, our choice. But most people don't know that they've got a choice. And basically what the right thing to do is never mind about all I know about the way that that person's dressed. Let's stop that and come back and look again and look again and look again and recognize that maybe that clothing is not fully defining them. It may, in fact, be a a Halloween costume. So we need more and more and more investigation. We need to get more and more and more data, but the average ordinary person doesn't take the effort. What do they do? They jump to a conclusion. And which direction do they jump? They jump in the direction that they've always jumped to a conclusion. So with that conclusion, that's what brings up feelings. If we can begin to start to control the conclusion that we have, then we can feel the way that we want to every time we control the conclusion. Now, Here's where it goes for the jhanas. Getting into the first jhana means one wholesome thought after another wholesome thought after another wholesome thought after another wholesome thought until we recognize that wholesome thoughts is a bit of work. And we can begin to put some silence and some gaps in those wholesome thoughts. And then, in fact, we can begin to schedule those gaps between the thoughts with the breathing. Yeah, so when I breathe out, I can let I can breathe out the thoughts and put some gaps in there. And after a little while of consciousness of recognizing that there's no thoughts going on, that's when that yeehaw feeling comes. Ah, I'm in second jhana. But by being doing that, you have popped right out of that second jhana because you're not quiet anymore. You're celebrating your quietness and the celebration is always noisy. This is why we have to work at getting into the second jhana to get it really quiet. But the question is, do we really need it that quiet? Is that necessary? Transition. I lost it. I didn't uh, catch the transition between first and second. Why we get excited? The first. Okay, the first jhana is one wholesome thought after another, and then the fruit of the first jhana, one wholesome thought after another after another, is is that we can now put some space between the thoughts. Maybe a whole second without thinking. 
Okay, and then the entrance into the second jhana is when that lingers so that we can linger in the second jhana about 10 or 15 seconds long enough to recognize that we're now lingering in a state where there's no thinking. And that's where the yippee comes in, and that's a hurdle. That, that's why we call it the path of the second jhana, because the path of the second jhana has this enormous hurdle that we like it so much. <laughs> All right, then in fact, that's why we then, to complete the second jhana, take that wowness as the object. The pity itself becomes um the object of meditation so it's in the second jhana in the fruit of the second jhana where we could really ask that question of how good can i feel at that very very top level of feeling okay like at the mountaintop you're on top of everest now how long are you going to stay on the top of everest you're not going to spend the night there (laughs) for sure (laughs) unless you're going to be buried there or let us say buried in the snow. So um, we don't stay in that pity laden over the top, great feelings. Now, here's another way of saying it is, I feel so good, I don't have to even tell myself how good I feel. I feel so good, I don't have the time to tell myself how good I feel. And so there's no, there's no, um, voicing about it but we also begin to recognize that that kind of level of feeling good that top pinnacle is actually even even though it is so much more pleasant so less dukkha such less energy i mean when the mind has got hindrances in it it's all over the place there's a lot of work going on in the mind when we get into the first jhana we get it to the point that there's very little work going on, one thought after another. When we go down to the next level of there is no thought, but there is extraordinary congratulations and wowness and all of that top-level feeling, that too has its own kind of busyness. And so we again go into the third jhana. Now the third jhana is when we remove the, um, the, the pity leaving it in a state of sukha. So now, how good can we feel when we're going in the direction of complete relaxation? The second jhana is giddy. It is intentionally giddy. It is so marvelous. It is so wow. But it's still giddy. And so we go into a deeper state of peace. That deeper state of peace is then when we can begin now to see how we perceive things. Just beginning to introduce how we see things. The fourth uh, jhana then is even more restful than that. This is what we would call upeka, which would be then in our language, complete relaxation. You just, you can't move. You feel so good. You You feel so great. But you couldn't do, you couldn't bother to do anything. It's so nice right now. Okay. Now, I will tell you a story that happened. This happened before I was a monk, but it was happening when I was really deep doing meditation. And that I was uh, visiting some friends at a house in Los Angeles. And that 
um, this was kind of a hippie community place. And that uh, uh, this girl uh, got permission from her daddy to use this house for all kinds of new agey spiritual kind of things. And so I parked the van in the yard, living in the van, but staying there. And I was sitting in the front room with my eyes mostly uh, not wide open, but downcast, but enough to where if you looked, you could see that the eyes were open. And I was just sitting there in that state, and this guy walks in. And instead of just walking around and leaving the room, daddy becomes curious. And so he sits down in front of me, and he starts waving his hand in front of me and doing things like that, trying to pull me out of this state. Well. Whatever state it was, I could have pulled myself right out of it if I wanted to. I just didn't want to. I liked where I was right then. And I didn't care enough about this guy. Later, guess what happened? He threw me out of that house. I freaked him out. (laughs) 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 That's when I learned about you don't go into these John estates at the wrong place. It's dangerous. I had freaked this guy out just sitting there, just breathing well. Okay. So, but I could tell um, on that level how empty everything was. Nothing matters at all. I don't care who this guy is. I don't know anything. This is too nice to move. Now, what genre I was in, I can't tell you because I didn't know enough about it then to be able to distinguish it. But the point is, is that these these states are capable. It's possible to do this stuff. There's nothing to it. But it also points out in this story how dangerous these genres can be. If you're doing them at the wrong place in the wrong time, they're not beneficial. They're not going to climb you out of your dukkha. And so there's no reason to love and want and cetera jhanas for the jhana's sake, but rather that we want to be able to experience how the mind works and the state that the mind is in. Now we can do that. Because in the first jhana, when the first jhana is really strong, there will be moments when there are gaps in the thoughts. There will be moments when you can really uh, pay attention. But in fact, this is the way then to do it, back to the sutta number 111. And that is, there is a sequence of events. Well, I'm glad you're back, Michael. There is a sequence of events that is laid out in this sutta that we started with, with uh, Sariputta. So I'm now getting back to that. And that is, is that once one is in the first jhana, here's the sequence of events of what we're going to do with it. Got me? Okay. Now, the first thing that we have to recognize is everything that we are going to be doing with it is wholesome, valuable, useful. And we can say that because we're already completely removed from hindrances when we go into the first jhana. 
So the first jhana, the first object of meditation that we're going to take when in first jhana is that part of applied and sustained thought. You keep watching the mind to make sure that this thought's wholesome. And it keep checking checking the mind. Is this thought wholesome? Well, how good can I feel? And so we start talking about good thoughts, brightening the mind, and sustaining that, and keeping that good state. Okay? And then you ask the question, what do you do next? You do it again. You come back and make sure that you're not asking those foolish kind of questions. That's a hindrance. What do I do next? This is it. This is what we're doing, guys. Let's do it. All right? So we're not into asking what do we do next. We're into asking how can I maintain this? Now, as we have that, um, the example is um, sutta number 19, two kinds of thoughts, where the cowherd is getting his cows out to pasture. He passes through a village, and he's got a great big stick. All cowherds in the time of the Buddha had a walking stick. I guess everybody had a walking stick. But this guy is using that walking stick to beat his cows to keep them from stealing food off of the, uh, uh, the carrots and whatnot beat the cow to keep the cow from stepping on uh, children and whatnot like that. Okay, so in fact, we can think of it that we have to kind of take control of our own mind. We have to beat it out of its hindrances. We beat it out of its hindrances. Oh, no, don't go to that. You can't have that food. Whack! Okay, so that would be then the right effort is to take that stick and whack ourselves with it to come out of those unwholesome thoughts. And then after we get past that area of those hindrances, the farmer has, or the cowherd has his uh, animals out into the pasture where there's rice stubble or whatever like that. And now the cows are grazing and they have their heads down. There is no reason for the cowherd to now to stand there with that stick whacking the cows because they're doing the thing. The cowherd can in fact stand down, go sit under a tree. So that would be the distinction then between the first jhana is whacking those cows, getting them to the, uh, to the pasture, and then the second jhana is now that they're in the pasture, we don't have to whack them anymore. We don't have to look at them anymore. Now we can just sit down and just kind of keep an eye on things. Okay, so this would be the way of, have, of getting into the second jhana which means that we're getting the mind quiet so that we can really pay attention to how good we feel. And then in the third jhana, we mollify that. But all of this time, we recognize that we are, in fact, without really recognizing it yet, that we actually are changing the sankara. That in the old days, what we were doing, we were feeding it really, really old stuff. Now we're feeding it more and more new stuff, just like uh, the example of looking at the person who's walking down the street and looking and looking and looking. And I might, in fact, start looking at their face and recognize them instead of looking at their clothing. So, in fact, we begin to start reading. We start gathering information rather than saying, oh, I know who that person is because I know the way that they're dressed. I know, uh, so we judge a book by its cover. Now what we're going to do is spend more time investigating. So this is all about investigation. 
and the investigation says, look how much dukkha there is up here. There's a whole lot less dukkha here. Oh, look, at there's dukkha here, all of these wholesome thoughts. Let's come down to the, uh, the uh, a lower level of dukkha, which is total, total, out-of-sight pleasure. Wow, pleasure, how far from dukkha can that be? But that second jhana, it says, oh, no, that's still even more busy. Let's look at that to see that we can actually make that one more peaceful. Then, in fact, a skilled meditator wouldn't spend a whole lot of time in second jhana. He would go for the third and then the fourth. So in that regard, now we're saying we're going to, uh, with the first jhana, our object is applied and sustained thought. In the second jhana, our object of meditation is how good we feel, the, the, the sukha, the pity. The third jhana then is a relaxed version of that, which is, ah, oh, how good I feel. But it doesn't have any of that language in it. And then the fourth jhana is very, very stable. This is what we would call upeka. Oh, well, if that's the case, then this is the sequence of events of what objects we're going to take. In the second jhana, the object is sukha, or is pity. In the third jhana, it is sukha. In the fourth jhana, it is opaka, which means complete, nothing's happening. All right. From there, we can begin to see when something does happen, how it happens. We can see the perception when it starts up. We can see the connection between nothingness, which means no perception at all, versus the perception of being conscious. This is what we call neither neither um, perception or non-perception. But basically, we talk about that consciousness is unbounded here because there is so much of it happening. It's like a flood. Just everything, just coming in, coming in, coming in, and we keep noticing that. But the normal mind state is something happens and we pay attention to it. We invent something. We tell ourselves a story about it. We mess with that. We have feelings about it, etc. And we're not watching. Here we're going to say, let's start paying more attention to watch and not so much processing. It's, it's sort of like um, uh, data input for a computer that um, if if you were just reading data and doing nothing with it, but let us say just copying it, then that reading that data can be done really fast. A whole lot of data comes in a movie and make less than 15 or 20 seconds. All right. But if you've got to process that data, let us say that you, the processing of the data is taking those uh, frames in one at a time and displaying them on the screen. Then now, because we're taking the data in as processed and processing it, it's going to take two hours to play that movie to where the data of the movie is only like three to five minutes. That gives you an idea of how much then we're missing because we're not just taking in data and taking in data. Then, in fact, in two hours, we could have gotten 30 or 40 movies worth of data instead of watching one movie play at the uh, processed speed. So if you understand that little analogy, then you can understand that we spend most of our time 
perceiving reality and very little time actually taking in reality. And the jhanas will be when you're so stable that you can see that process happening and you can bring it to an end. And at the, uh, the very end of that sutta is uh, where Sariputta recognizes that when he brings perception to an end, he also brings feeling to an end. There's no feelings left because there's nothing to perceive. All we've got is just raw input, which was basically the kind of state that I was in when this guy walks into the room and sits down in front of me and waves his hands and freaks himself out. That was just input. <laughs> no processing done. So if we can see that, then we can recognize, well, maybe it would be a nice time to spend doing that kind of stuff. But the real teaching of the Buddha, back to Dukkha, Dukkha, Naroda, the first jhana delivers that. So the real issue is, can we stay in first jhana? Can we continue to apply and sustain and apply and sustain and occasionally feel really good about it and occasionally be satisfied with it? But we just keep coming back. Is this thought wholesome? Is this thought wholesome? Is this thought wholesome? And pretty soon, we're living our lives joyfully. And we're free from suffering. But we're still just an ordinary human being. So we'll top this off with what's the difference between being ordinary and being special. Everybody in their childhood is taught to be special. Everybody with a self-preservation instinct thinks of themselves as special. That if you're going to have three people who are uh, being under arrest, let us say, and two of them are going to be dead within the next minute, do you want to be the one who survives? Of course we do. That selfishness is built in as a self-preservation instinct. And that self-preservation instinct that we all have means that my preservation is more important than any other preservation. An example of that would be an ex-president who more concerned with him staying out of jail than he is with wrecking the economy. These are the things that I mean, okay? So when we get that point, when we recognize that that selfishness is in there, biologically, that selfishness is in there in DNA. And it comes with the idea that because my preservation is more important to me than anybody else's preservation, then that makes me special. And here it comes, okay? Everybody in society is um, uh, trained to feel like they're special. The kids are taught that they're special, right? Okay, and this process that we're going through we recognize it. Well, hello, Matt. Hi, Don Rotho. We were just about to finish up. Glad to see you. Okay. <clears throat> so we were talking about specialness and how we were all trained from childhood and all have it built into the self-preservation instinct that each one of us has the feeling of being special. But once we have uh, gotten through the practice of uh, meditation so that we can get into a, the wholesome state, let's say, of the first jhana, we begin to see that, oh, 
I'm not special. The only thing that's happening right now is that I'm wise enough and sharp enough that I can see how screwed up and unhappy everybody else is. <laughs> and guess what? That makes us exactly alike. I'm just like they are. And I'm going to make sure that I can come out of that when I remember to come out of it. Right? But I'm still ordinary. This is a human being here. That's all you've got. You do not have a guru. You do not have a God. You do not have a, uh, a guru with clay feet. You've got a human being here who has just happened to practice wanting to be happy most of the time. <laughs> so in that regard, he is seeing himself then as just ordinary. Where everybody else sees themselves as special. That kind of turns the definition of that word special and ordinary upside down. The guy who is ordinary and knows he's ordinary is quite special. Ain't nobody like that. Everybody else is ordinary because they think themselves to be special. Wow, what a pleasant attitude. I'm ordinary. Word, yeah, time. that in fact, you could say that the thoughts of being special is a hindrance. It's an unwholesome thought. And the thoughts of being ordinary are wholesome thoughts. That we're just like everybody else. Hey, this is what it's like. We can get along here. Nothing special. Nothing to it. And this is how we actually practice then. And we do not need to have these high jhanas. Now, here's the point then. Let's, let's do it this way. You said eight. I've said both nine and four, but in the suttas, they're actually numbered and listed with the features of them, one, two, three, four, including an analogy. The analogy for the first jhana is like sprinkling water on uh, a powder like... Um, flour in order to make it into a ball of dough so that there is no extra water. It's not drippy, but all of the water and moisture is completely con uh, infused in the dough. That's the analogy of the first jhana. The second jhana, the analogy is being in a wellspring, um, uh, an artesian well that has a pond over it so that the water that feeds this pond comes bubbling, not bubbling, but roaring up out of the ground because you've got a hill somewhere close by where all the water is actually coming to and it's coming out of the ground like a spring, except that now we've got a place around it. If you go swimming in that place and get down to where that spring is, it is absolutely marvelous. It just feels good. We had a, an artesian well like that when I was uh, 11 or 12 years old, I lived in Shiraz, South Carolina at the time, and they had a, a pond that was like that. And all the kids in the neighborhood, we'd all love to swim out into that pond because we knew where it was. In fact, you could look at, out at the pond and see where that well, where that wellspring was, that artesian well that was coming up, because it actually got to the surface. And so we would all go to that part of the pond and swim down to get that gush. What a marvelous, gushy feeling that was, swimming in that some warm, some cold, moving around kind of water. 
That's the second jhana, and that's the analogy that the Buddha gave for that second jhana is like being in a wellspring that's just being completely overwhelmed with uh, the, the turbulence of the water. Then the analogy of the third jhana is that the, uh, even though you have a, a spring or a pond of water like that, the lotus can rise up out of it, open its left, and it's not wet. It's completely dry. The lotus, even though two-thirds of the stem and down and all of its roots, is being covered by water, and it may even be gushing water, so that there's a huge current coming across it, and yet that lotus flower can sit right up, open itself up, and it's dry. Okay? So, the analogy for the fourth jhana is... Imagine that you were completely covered with a sheet, a shimmering white sheet. This is where we get the concept of the idea of boundless space in the sense that you don't know where you begin and where uh, the sheet ends. You don't know uh, the distinction between your uh, environment and your body, that it's all interconnected. That we're just sitting here as a shimmering thing. There's that, there's not much there. Okay, so this is the analogy for the fourth jhana. The other things that are your lotion as four uh, as higher jhanas do not have those kind of descriptions. All they in fact have, you could say that really what's going on is once you get to the fourth jhana, what are you gonna do with it? Well, you're going to examine the mind. You're going to examine how perception and consciousness create together. Uh, what kind of um, sankaras you're making, what kind of uh, salayatana or what kind of uh, television movie are you making for yourself? That's the value of that. But guess what? You can begin to see that in the first jhana. There's no reason for you to have to go into the higher jhanas to understand that it is perception and the way that you perceive things that create your feelings. And when you stop perceiving things and start taking input and just taking input, there's nothing much to feel about it. So where is the ninth jhana then listed? Well, the ninth jhana in this sutta that we're talking about, number 111, one by one as they occur, it's where we recognize that when perception stops, feelings stop. When perception, when sanya stops, vedana stops, and there's nothing left, and that's the end of it. Now, does anybody and everybody who is going to be able to do the first jhana and live a marvelous, happy, dukkha-free life, do they have to go and see that for themselves? Or can you take Saraputta's word for it that the end of perception is the end of feelings and that's the end of it? Go read that sutta and you'll see that that's what Sariputta came to. He came to the point that there was nothing left to do in this stuff and called jhanas. You can see it. That when you stop making stuff up, you stop feeling bad about what you make up. <laughs> it's just that simple. <laughs> yes, yes. Michael, go right ahead. 
Um, I have a, f a few points I wanted to share, but it's, it'll take me a few paragraphs. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> okay. Um, so um, I guess the first thing is that the way I think of jhana and how many you need is um, the analogy I use is um, the person is addicted to some kind of substance and the amount of moments of clarity that person needs in order to take on the path of recovery of sobriety. Um, so let's say you're addicted to alcohol and you have a, a moment of clarity and you're a very sort of wholesome character and that one moment of clarity is enough to kind of wake you up and put you on the path of sobriety. Um, but other people would need more moments of clarity. They would need to see a lot more of the suffering that they're creating for themselves and other to, to take on the path of sobriety. Um, so essentially, um, whether or not you need only the first jhana or you need to go through multiple jhanas in order to sober up and, um, you know, pursue the unconditioned essentially depends on how dense you are, how attached to your delusions you are, how deep your habitual tendencies are. And um, sort of the experience of jhana for me is that um, you have your, it's, it's sort of an unraveling of the conditioned mind of the, of the cognitive and affective processing of the mind of sensation, perception, cognition, and the emotional part of the mind. So every, every jhana is a cessation of a grosser uh, uh, mental process, essentially. You might and, not have been on. I went through that already in this talk. Exactly. Well, so entering, entering the first jhana is just getting rid of the, the excess static, all those five hindrances, and then you have like a pretty good functioning cognitive process uh, there. Okay, let me, I'm glad you came to that point. I got a question right here to ask about that. If in the first jhana, the mind is functioning well and properly, then why do we need the higher jhanas to go inspect to see how the mind works in order to make it better or fix it, where in the first jhana is already functioning correctly? Or in other well, words, why would we kick a sleeping dog? Let the yeah, sleeping I, dog I, lie. Yes, why, Anna. The, why, 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 why we talk about it? Why we obsessed about them? What well. exactly? <laughs> You're asking my question exactly. It's what, the, but it must be reason for this. It cannot be just. The answer to that is, is that all of these guys throughout history, including Sariputta, including the guys here and all of these Westerners, talking about wanting, considering, playing with, Lusting after the higher jhanas is a hindrance to the first jhana. Did I get that through? Let me repeat myself. Caring about, wanting to know, counting them up, experiencing them in some cases, etc. like that, is a hindrance to the first jhana. In order to get into the first jhana, you got to forget all about the fact that you don't have the second jhana and concentrate on the fact that, wow, isn't it nice I've got the first jhana? Because you're not going to get anywhere until you get the first one well. And once you get into the state of, well, this is good enough, then what else do we want? That's a really, really important question, Anna, that you're asking. 
What we else? We want nothing, but we want nothing. It's not the right place to be. Yeah, but when you're in the right place, where do you want to go after that? Exactly. Exactly. When you get to the first jhana, where else is there to go except past your own bus stop? You're going to miss your own bus. You got to stop where you need to be. Okay, so. Can, um, I, can I try to finish the point a little bit more quickly than I'm accustomed to? Oh, yeah, we got stuff. Yeah, go ahead. Go right ahead. <laughs> You know me, I, I, I tend to give a lot of context for what I'm about, what I'm going to say um, in order to kind of to make it clear. But um, and you might just uh, Domrado, I suspect All you might. All gurus does that. Never mind. Go ahead. <laughs> I suspect you might you might disagree with the way that I um, present this, but um, I'm just sort of speaking um, from how I interpret my own experience here. But um, just going back to the addict who is intoxicated by a substance and uh, sobriety metaphor um, the point of jhana is not jhana the point of jhana is to get the mind clear enough to see the unconditioned in uh in mn64 the buddha the buddha says that in in any of the jhanas um if you can attend to the deathless element or the nibbana element the stilling of all formations element mm -hmm. as he calls it um, then you can attain to to full awakening right there in that jhana. But if you if you can't in the first jhana, then you go to the second, and then you attend to the deathless. And if you can't attend to the deathless in the second, you go to the third, and so on and so forth. Um, so it's a matter of it's a matter of being able to see the unconditioned awareness that's that's ever present. That's usually covered up by the static of the hindrances that becomes more apparent. In the first jhana, but if you're attending to the jhana factors because they're so pleasurable, you're not going to attend to the unconditioned. You're just going to continue going through the jhanas, and that, and when I'm when I the, the 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 sobriety in the metaphor is is the unconditioned um, that I'm talking about. Um, so excellent, right? So in uh, that regard, going back to Anna's question and putting that into the context here, once the alcoholic has mm. left the liquor store. <laughs> Once the alcoholic has left the liquor store, why pay any attention to the liquor store anymore? Now, here's the point. Once the mind is in the first jhana, we've already gotten all the satisfaction. The mind is functioning correctly. So, you're saying that your idea is, is that if the mind is not functioning correctly in the first jhana, and that we might need the second jhana in order to uh, uh, to get, you know, the sobriety that we need. Mm -hmm. Maybe, in fact, when we left the liquor store, we carried a bottle of whiskey in our hip pocket. And we didn't recognize it. And so we need to now to do this kind of pat down investigation to recognize that oh i brought some crap with me i can appreciate that part of the analogy well but, and then and the analogy jhana is essentially like rehab or you can think of it as the methadone that's used to take the heroin addict off of heroin um, and sobriety but here's the reason fun. though is because the heroin addict even though he's off the heroin today he's going to go right back to it or in the analogy that he's going to go back to the liquor store. Mm -hmm. 
exactly if we can keep the guy out of the liquor store we don't have to worry about anything else now do we he will eventually eventually, everything will be okay if we can keep him out of the liquor store if you can keep your mind out of the hindrances then we there's nothing really left to do it's like your analogy out of the liquor store Go ahead, uh, Anna. Magix. Yeah. What is where is the magix? Where is this Milarepa's magix or whatever? Where where are they fitting? <laughs> I thought I thought that we had finished that before this talk started. <laughs> that's not that's because... not useful. Damarado, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think the the closest analogy that you use to what I'm trying to say is when you talk about waking up in the morning and you're still groggy and go back to sleep that you have to wake up wake up enough to actually get out of bed the mind the mind has to wake up enough in the first jhana and if not in the first jhana then it has to wake up enough to get out of the condition no 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 well i'm just borrowing your metaphor yes but you're making the same mistake that the buddha made before he became enlightened all right the point is that the first jhana when it's fully developed, uh-huh. that's the end of dukkha. The first jhana fully developed means that you can go around in the first jhana all the time, and mm-hmm. you're recommending the other way, which is the way that the Westerners do it. Now, hang, hang on. And the way <laughs> that the Buddha did in the sense that, well, I'm not going to spend most of my time in jhana at all, so if I'm going to spend time in jhana, why don't I do it in a higher jhana? That may be the, like the second John is better than the first. That's not what I'm recommending. What I'm saying is because of our conditioning, if we don't wake up enough in the first jhana to that's the whole point of the get out of our conditioning. Of, no, wait a minute. The definition of the first jhana is waking ourselves up out of it. We're out of it when we're in the first jhana. There is nothing more to do when we're in the first jhana if you can understand I'm not, I'm not that, arguing if that we could we need to apply and sustain it that the reason why somebody would want to go to the second jhana is because the first jhana they think is not good enough and the buddha is saying yes it is good enough it, it is good I, enough but people are not smart enough <laughs> because i i connect those uh mirror like uh, magician magics to alcoholic to the to the drink mm-hmm. so what i'm missing so it's not i wanna because i work with the uh, people before first jhana right so this mm-hmm. is a magic so what exactly are you i'm doing with this magic to take out the battle oh exactly right you see um um the magic is to think that the alcohol will help the guy. Also, the magic. Um, you see, oh, there's Michael. All right. The screen just got moved around. When you guys turn your <laughs> cameras on and off, my screen goes berserk. So, um, when, when we have the mind free from the hindrances that's the manifestation that's the alcohol coming up when the hindrances are coming up and the magical thinking is is that oh there's going to be some value 
in those unwholesome thoughts, just like people have the magical belief that there is some value in the alcohol. Okay. And so part part of us recognizing or part of the waking up process is to recognize that alcohol is is a hindrance. And along with that, we recognize that all unwholesome thoughts are hindrances. What are the hindrances to the hindrances of feeling the way you want to feel of being in the state that you want to be in? And if you are in the state that you want to be in, then why are you trying to go to some other place? However, if while you're in a really, really good state and it's so relaxed that you even start doing even less. You see, second jhana is considered more than the first jhana. The reality is that the second jhana is less. It's less. It's less mental it, activity. It, right. The, that, uh, the normal hindered mind is busy. It's got a mm-hmm. lot of stuff going on, a lot of desires, a lot of feelings, a lot of stubbed toes. When we're in the first jhana, we have removed all of that. Here, here's so another that, image. Well, hang on. <laughs> Just hang on. Because I'm, actually, I'm trying to answer Anna's question. Okay. <laughs> All right. Because uh, I know that you're a lost cause. You're going to want jhanas no matter what. No, okay. that is not what I'm saying. <laughs> I, don't, I don't need second jhana at all. Right. That's the whole point. But if we are sitting there with one wholesome thought after another, and we recognize that I don't even have to think at all. I don't even have to think at all then that's the way of going into the second jhana. That in fact, there's a procedure built into it in the sense that the mind, an ordinary person's mind, is all over the place, like a horse that's out in the wild. And the first jhana is like putting the horse in a pasture. He's got boundaries. He's not going to wind up in the ravine. He's not going to wind up uh, being shot. He's not going to wind up um, uh, with a mare in... 12 folds or 12 mirrors in one fold. He's just not going to wind up there because he's got his mind in the area. That's the first jhana. We give ourselves a corral. Okay. And then no thought would be like the second jhana, which would be like putting the horse in a corral, very small place. And then the higher jhanas would like be putting the, uh, the horse in a stall. Like if they're going to be working, uh, uh, doing uh, medical stuff, with large animals, they'll they'll craze them in so that the animal can't move. Or if the vet uh, is working on a dog, they'll want everybody to hold that dog down, hold him still, right? Okay, so this is the idea that we're going to take the mind into an area that is really, really, really still. But we can't live our lives in that really, really still place. We're still going to have to come back. We're still going to have to be active. So the real skills that we're going to develop is the skill of being in a good mood all the time. We can, in fact, with first jhana, do all the work that we need to do with perception. But when we're doing it in the first jhana, it's actually a vipassana higher jhana. By actually paying attention when you were sitting there with nothing else to do and you're in the first John and everything is great. Look at how your mind works. 
and then you're in that jhana. Look at perception, look at how you perceive things, and that's in second, third jhana. That's the way of, of doing it is you pop in there, you take a good look, and then you come back to the first jhana. Because the other option is the way that all the people practice is, is that they practice a little bit the first jhana, then they practice really hard and really hard for the second and the third. And when they come out of the second or the third jhana, where do they land? Back into hindrances. Okay, that's the problem is, is that the higher jhanas are prone to land back into the hindrances rather than having this baseline of the first jhana. So when you go to the higher jhanas, where do you fall back to? The first jhana. This is, in fact, a very interesting way of talking about the Buddha's various first teaching. In the Dhammachakapavanta Sutta, he taught the um, the Four Noble Truths, but before he taught that, he taught the middle path. The middle path or the middle way is the very firstest, firstest teaching of the Buddha. And he taught it in the sense of what he had experienced himself, the two extremes. Now, Western teachers and um, uh, Western Buddhism misunderstands this issue about uh, the middle path because they think that the middle path is halfway between the self-flagellation and the self-torture that people put themselves through with the hindrances all the time. And the other extreme is going to the bother, brothel, going to uh, the bar, going and getting drunk, going and buying things we don't need, going to sports games, betting money, you know, all the kinds of stuff that people do looking for pleasure. And so we're either looking for pleasure in all the wrong places or we're looking for pain in all the wrong places. We hurt ourselves, okay? But this is not the teaching of the Buddha. That's the ordinary understanding of it. What the Buddha taught instead was is that the middle path is the path between the harming ourselves directly and these high sensual pleasures that the guys get in the higher jhanas. And wanting things out of those higher jhanas, thinking that they're getting something out of these higher jhanas, wherein all they're really getting is a very pleasant abiding. The sensuality of the pleasant abiding. And the Buddha did both of those things, and so he knows what he's talking about. So where is the middle path point in this kind of middle path? It's the first jhana. The first jhana is the middle path between the hindrances and those higher jhanas that people want. And they will justify, and they will find things out about, oh, well, you're in the first jhana, and even in the second jhana, you're still carrying crap. And you need the third jhana to get rid of that. And if you can't get it rid of it, there you'll go to the fourth jhana. That's completely bogus. That does not exist. It's not true. That the real point that the Buddha is teaching is, is that the hindrances, we can come out of them. And you can come out of them again. And if there is a deep, deep underlying hindrance that you haven't gotten rid of yet, what's the point? The point is it'll come up. Well, if it does come up, let's get rid of it right then and there and come back into the first jhana. We don't have to worry about whether it was really down there and really deeply buried. The only thing that we have to be concerned with is when it comes up to the surface, can we whack it off? 
And so there is really no need for the higher jhanas, but they are really pleasant. Go for it, man. Enjoy it. But when you come out of it, come back into the first jhana and live your life happily all the time. So let me get that again. The middle path is about the middle way between extreme physical or sensual pleasure and extreme mental or like higher jhana, ascetic kind of. No, 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 no. You're mixing the two metaphors. Okay, <laughs> metaphor Doesn't number metaphor right number one is um, the middle path is between uh, harming oneself and going after sensual pleasures. Okay, the difference then would would be the um, <laughs> the CEO who has high expensive cognac versus the gutter alcoholic. Those are the two extremes that we see in this uh, uh, method of looking. Both of them in the physical world. Okay. And the Buddha says, no, that's not the right way of looking at the, uh, the middle path. The middle path is between hindrances, the self-flagellation part, and the higher jhanas, and that the middle place is the first John to get rid of the hindrances altogether, but then there's no else, there's no other place to go. That's really what we have to do is remove the hindrances to come into the first John. And then with that as a foundation, you will see how the mind works because you're already seeing how it minds works because you're already able to control it. The second half of the uh, Paticca Samapada is already in control because you feel the way that you want to feel right now. You don't go into dukkha. Okay. Now the question is, well, what about next time? Or here? Well, what about next time? Because that's the, that's what Michael is asking. Is well, what about next that's time? Not... What about? So, Domrado, can I can I yeah, make my sure. point clear since I'm still being misunderstood? <laughs> All righty-o, go for it. Because you're still misunderstanding me. Okay. I'm not advocating any need to go into any higher jhanas at all. I mentioned that um, for people who don't see the unconditioned from the first jhana. So I'll, I'll this will take me just 60 seconds to make this point. Okay. Um, I'll use a different I'll use different imagery this time. So if we're to think of the body mind, the conditioned mind, as a house and the house has windows but the windows have drapes they're like blankets like a like a like a house that just has blackout blankets over the windows so those blackout blankets are the five hindrances and outside the house is the unconditioned reality the sunlight is outside the house so when we take off the five the blankets off all five of the windows and the light of the unconditioned can pour into the house of the conditioned mind if at that point we can step outside the house into the unconditioned um then that's all we need to do and you no, need to no, get no, no, into no, the first no, jhana to no, do no. that no you don't but if we get busy playing around with the jhana factors inside the house 
You don't have to leave the house. All we need to do is to open the doors and the windows and give ourselves the freedom. We can leave the house, but we don't have to. Okay. I'll, I'll accept that as long as you understand that what I'm saying is that once the five hindrances are gone, you're in the first jhana and then the mm -hmm. light of the unconditioned is visible at that point. Mm -hmm. And if you can attend to that, then there's no need wait to a go minute. into you are, no, Wait a minute, wait a minute. When you're in the first jhana, you are attending to it. Not necessarily. If your yes, attention, necessarily, if your you is, finish the hindrances. But you can, you can remove the hindrances and then have your attention on the jhana factors, which are conditioned. You, that's why the Buddha in MN64 says, if you can attend to the unconditioned, then you can attain uh, basically arahatship right there in the first jhana. Right. But if you can't, then you go through the next jhana. And if you keep missing it, if you keep missing the fact that there it is right there, there's the light of the unconditioned right outside the windows. You've removed the hindrances. You can see it. But if you're going to stay in the house and play with the other jhana factors, you can do that for the rest of your life. It's completely pointless. It may be nice to be in a house full of light. It may be more pleasant, but the whole point is to step outside of the conditioned and to abide in the unconditioned. Because why would you want to? Why would you want to to stick okay. around in in, in the, the rising and passing the condition? Okay. The answer is is that you are manufacturing reasons to give yourself extra work to do that you don't need to do. When are you going to stop giving yourself extra work to do when you can say this is good enough? It, it's the easiest thing in the world to see the unconditioned and to just step outside. That's what I'm saying is that there okay. isn't any more work to do. Okay, that's the whole point. That's the first jhana. So whatever you're thinking of is first jhana still has hindrances right here in this moment. But when you take all of the uh, the curtains down, you can mm -hmm. see well enough, good enough. And it when makes, are we going to be satisfied? That's the whole point is, is that and you're saying that it's possible for somebody to have the first jhana, but when they're not in the first jhana, they're not satisfied with the first jhana. When they're in the first jhana, they are satisfied with it. And so they decide when they are in ordinary hindered mind, oh, I need the second jhana. No, what I'm saying is that when you're not in Johnny, you've put the curtains back up on the windows and you're back in mental darkness again and you yes, can't see exactly. the unconditioned from that state. That's what I'm saying. Okay. You can All see right. the unconditioned from well, the what first What is genre. the unconditioned? What is unconditioned? The unconditioned mean? is... I mean, that's a Buddhist word, unconditioned. I don't think anybody knows what it means. Uh, I think it... You think every, unconditioned is something that's there. It's an unconditioned... There it is. There's the unconditioned. The unconditioned is the natural state of the mind. It's the ultimate reality. Well, when something is not conditioning, it's because it's irrelevant. It's not there. In the, so sa in the same way that a sober mind is not conditioned by a drug, the unconditioned mind is not conditioned by sensation, perception, thinking, and, and emotions. Right. So it's free from the hindrances. It's unconditioned. Yeah, it's the natural state of the mind, but we're intoxicated well, by the I world. wouldn't believe that an instant. I wouldn't believe that. The natural state of mind is the normal state of mind, the hindered state of the mind. Of the hind uh, I can give you seven billion examples. You come up with one example of what you're talking about. You can't do it. So why are you talking about natural and normal? 
I'm, I'm talking about, I'm just speaking from experience that the unconditioned is well, what essentially... is the unconditioned? Come back and let's go for that. You're using a word as if it existed. It, well, it does exist. It's the same thing that every enlightened teacher talks about. Everybody. No, they don't. It's what Those the Buddha talks really about. Those who really understand unconditioned don't talk about it because there's nothing to talk about. So please, you want to talk about, and you mentioned over and over again, unconditioned. Describe it. Give me a definition. I can I can give you a, a, the effect of the unconditioned when the mind nope, makes nope, contact. Nope. No, when the mind makes contact with the unconditioned, it becomes completely sober in that moment. So when it it becomes, wait a minute, when it comes into contact with the unconditioned, what is it contacting? It's not a thing. It's 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 not a thing. It's not a noun. All right, let's go in that direction because now we can unravel the goop that you've gotten yourself into. Because there is no such thing as an unconditioned. Okay, so when the Buddha talks about the stilling of all formations, when he talks about Nibbana and the yeah. unconditioned, he's just making no, all that up. Wait a minute, it didn't, no, 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 no. You're making it up right here on the spot. What the Buddha mm. talked about was dropping all of that stuff. And you're saying that the dropping of the stuff is a stuff. No, that's no. not what I'm saying. Well, I'm using okay. analogies to make a point here. Okay, then instead of making an analogy, this is a good point. Define the unconditioned. What is unconditioned? You haven't still haven't answered that question. You've okay, so going back to the analogy of the house, that no. is an analogy for analogy. a mind no. that is under the condition no. of Let mental me darkness. When the light of true knowledge enters the mind, the mind becomes unconditioned. The mind becomes unconditioned. It becomes extinguished of greed, hatred, and delusion. It becomes clarified. It becomes crystal clear. I'm waiting that, for you to come around to my old there, joke. There, unconditioned, there's nothing to it. It's not there. It does not exist. That's the unconditioned. And it is unconditioning because it cannot condition because it does not exist. This is the teaching. Well, I'm not trying to get into a semantic. I'm not trying to get into like a semantic. It's not a semantic point. It's a major teaching of the Buddha that we have to start paying attention to what's not there. This is sunyata. He talks about it in several suttas. Sunyata is a synonym for the unconditioned. It's empty of what's not there. So, and you would not come to me with that. I kept asking you what it was, and you wouldn't we're, tell me. We're here me. to discuss Dhamma. That's why I'm, that's why I'm yeah. coming to you with this. <laughs> I, I, no. Well, that's a good point. Okay. So, <laughs> there is no advantage to us wanting something that we don't have if what we do have is good enough. That's the whole teaching is, is that wanting more and wanting something and getting something is not going to be the end of it because we're not to the end of wanting. But that's being not what that, I'm talking about, though. But being in a I'm state not talking of about wanting, wanting the unconditioned. Well, when people read all of this stuff, I mean, you're reading me a sutta it, out of your head. Number it becomes, it be, it, if, if it becomes a concept, then it's become a thing and then it becomes an right. object of lust. Right. 
That's what I'm hearing is, is that you right. made it into a concept. No, that's but that's not what I'm doing. You don't want you don't want to do that. I understand you don't want to do that. And when I'm pointing it up, you say, "Oh no, not not me. I didn't but do that's, that." <laughs> that's not fact, what I. But that's not what I was saying. That's be, that's me being misunderstood. What what I would say is another. I mean, you can only get at it through. I mean, even Jesus said he uses parables because he can only speak about eternal life or the absolute. He also truth told parables, him. Right? He all. It's also well known that none of those guys understood his parables. Well, here's another parable for you. <laughs> <laughs> Buddha Dasa called the Nibbana element the element of quenching, right? Because okay. the Buddha uses the metaphor of fire to represent greed, hatred, and delusion, ignorance, and craving, and all that. Nibbana Guess is, what? Guess is just an adjective for the ending Guess or the blowing out of those fires. Okay, guess what, though? The word quenching is Sir, is uh, Santikaro's word, not Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa. Santikaro was the one who did the English, not Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa. Okay, so what and, word and, did and he the word quenching, Extinguishing? Well, both of those have to do with an emergency. <laughs> okay, like the fire department comes and extinguishes a fire or a quenching of the thirst. You've heard the fire sermon, haven't you? <laughs> well, yes, but the whole point is about the Nibbana is let things cool off because we don't have any more of the heat that comes mm -hmm. from the rubbing. What are the things that we're rubbing? We're rubbing two hindrances together. Basically, that's what we're rubbing. And when we stop rubbing with the hindrances, things will cool off. And, and you're talking about, oh, well, when we hint, stop the hindrances and stop the rubbing, heat is still coming from someplace else. I don't know if that's what I'm saying. Well, this is why you're saying that if they if the first jhana is not enough, then they do the second jhana. I don't know if that's in sutta number uh, 64 or not. How many but people what, do you know who have entered the first jhana and then become completely free of greed, hatred, and delusion in the first jhana. I mean, when the they're Buddhist in the possible. first jhana, they are. Temporarily as a condition. Yeah, well, that's, <laughs> stop. The jhanas are conditions. Stop conditioning and then, and stop with the starting up of the hindrances again. As long as one is in the first jhana, that's all is needed. And you're saying, well, yeah, but they're not going to stay in the first jhana because of all of this old stuff that you're coming back. And I'm saying that if they can watch right then and that old stuff comes back up, we can say, never mind, start again. And that's the teaching of the Buddha. It's not that old underlying things are going to come up later. Sure, they are going to come up later. And if they do, they're coming up as hindrances. And we can mm -hmm. deal with that hindrances right then and there. And, and in that practice that you're describing, you're, you're extinguishing the hindrances right as they arise. Right, which is much more of a drop of water than a fire hose. Well, yeah, I mean, Westerners we agree. Westerners always <laughs> want, to fire, bring a, they want to bring a fire hose. To I, don't a, think we're uh, I don't think we're disagreeing at all. I just think you're misunderstanding what I'm saying. Like, I'm, I'm trying to advocate for going through the rest of the donnas when that's not what I was saying. Okay, that's what it sounds like. When, in fact... <laughs> Um, there, there's still 
pleasant abiding, and they are. They they built they beat cell phones tremendously. But our society is more attached to cell phones than they are to just well, things are just all right right now. They will leave the first jhana and play with their cell phone in grave danger of being back into the hindrances. And then when they do go back into the hindrances, it says, gosh, that's just a bunch of old stuff. I better go do a first and a second jhana to make sure that I'm taking care of them. And the answer is no, you only need to do the first jhana again by getting rid of them. Or in uh, the analogy with the alcoholic, all we have to do is get the alcoholic out of the liquor store. That's all we've got to do. And the next time he heads towards the liquor store, we take him and we take him out and we point him in the other directions. No, you're not going to go in there. You stay out of the liquor store. And when he starts to go back in, we grab him by the arm and says, no, turn around and go in the other direction. You're not going to go in the liquor store. One hindrance after another. Now, the difference is with this is, is that how many liquor stores does the average Dhamma dude have to put up with? How many relapses does the addict have to no, go through? Not how, no, not how many relapses. <laughs> uh, that's like how many returns to the same uh, liquor store. No, my question in this regard is how many liquor stores are there? I mean, how many of them are there? Oh, okay. okay greed, ill will, delusion. Um, grief, anguish, despair, anger, all of them liquor stores, we learn to stay out of them. Stay out of all the liquor stores. Any one of them has their own version of hindrances. Like one of them's got uh, vodka, another one's got beer, and another one's got wine, and another one has got uh, Hennessy or whatever like that. But they're all hindrances. It's like the liquor stores in, in uh, Northern Europe. They're like that. They all have different. You can't get it all in the same place. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, Anna, did you have something to say? I thought you, you looked like you were going to say something. No? Okay. You okay. All right. So that's, that's made, I think that it has to do with modern psychology, that Westerners are more trained in modern psychology than they are in the Dhamma. And, in, and that's where we talk about deep-seated issues. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, it doesn't matter how much of the trauma it was. Let us say, po you know, there's a thing called PTSD, post-dramatic stress disorder, right? Mm -hmm. We all went through that. It's called being born. We all go through that being children. Being in childhood is stress. And we are all suffering on, from our own uh, post-stress um, disorder. Okay. So in that, in that way, the psychologists talk about that stuff being is really, really deep-seated. But the point is, is that it doesn't matter how deep seated it is. It matters as to whether it comes up or not. An example of that with the post-traumatic stress disorder, let us say that this army guy comes back from the war. He's a war hero. Everybody in town loves him and everything is really, really good to go. And he's really enjoying it. 
And then one night he's sleeping in the bed and his little son, about eight or uh, six years old or something like that, comes and jumps on the bed with his dad in, in his sleep. And mom comes into the room because of all of the ruckus in there to find that daddy is there choking his son to death. Why? Because he had the hindrance of remembering that he was in Afghanistan or whatever, and he got raided when he was asleep and he had to defend himself. And so he goes back to that point. Now, even though that trauma is deep seated, the issue was is that it came up and he didn't know how to handle it. So would it be better for the for the dad to wake up and say, hey, this is your son. Stop doing what you're doing. That's the immediate thing that needs to be done is to stop. Right. Mm-hmm. And here the psychoanalysts are sitting around in the room discussing how bad his tra- trauma was that caused him to do that. And the only real issue is, is that, no, he's just got to stop doing it right now. And if the son comes in in another time, he needs to stop doing it right now. This is, in fact, in psychology, what they call um, uh, dealing with, with phobias. The example mm-hmm. is, is that the guy has a spider um phobia and so the first time that he goes to the psychiatrist and they start talking about oh i've got a spider uh phobia the psychiatrist mentions oh well i've got a pet spider maybe someday you'd like to see it and that terrifies the guy and all of that but it's just a word the next time the guy goes the psychiatrist says oh i brought my spider would you like to see him and the guy goes all freaked out and he says, well, you don't have to worry so much. It's just a plastic spider. And so basically what we're talking about is getting the guy around to the point that he actually can handle the spider and get rid of his fear. But he had to practice it over and over and over and over again. This is the point about the repetition, the repetition over and over and over again. OK, we don't yeah. have to go deep into some jhana. What we need to do is just keep practicing this first jhana over and over and over again. And what I'm saying that I think you might disagree with is, is yes, you don't have to go deep into jhana, but also if you see reality clear enough, it burns away all of those underlying tendencies immediately, and you won't even have to change your behavior because the program that, will be erased. That There are two methods then that we can discuss. One is, is that we can see it a little bit and change it a little bit. And we see it again mm-hmm. a little bit and change it a little bit. And then we see it again a little bit and change it a little bit. This is what we call practicing Anapanasati. All mm-hmm. right. Now let's get another example. The guy walks into the kitchen. Maybe he's angry or something like that. And somebody's in the kitchen with him. And they're, they're cooking and doing what they do. And he's he uh, in his anger and frustration, he puts his left hand on the counter to help support himself, only to find out instantly that it is one of those newfangled stoves that you that looks like a counter. But in fact, it's a stove and they just took the heat off of it. So it doesn't show red or anything, but it's scorching hot one time. When he recognizes how much that was painful, he's not going to put his hand on that burner ever again. Right. Mm -hmm. Does that mean that he will never stick his hand in any fire ever again? You're not so sure about that. 
But at least he learned that big lesson. He's not going to stick his hand in that fire. Now, here's another point about that with fire. And that is, is that the Native Americans, and I've got a little bit of that, so I've got some background with it, is that if a child in Western culture would crawl into a fire, let us say they're out camping, the parents and everybody there is going to jump up and keep that toddler, that crawling baby from crawling into the fire. In, in Native American culture, out there on the plains, in their teepee, they've got a fire going, and that same aged infant, uh, one who is not toddler yet, just, just crawling, and crawls into the fire, everybody will watch intently to see what happens when that baby crawls into that fire. <laughs> Why? Because that baby is going to learn a lesson about fire early in his life and westerners they keep sticking their hands in the fire because they didn't learn early enough about it in the first place they were protected and because they were protected they didn't get burned and because they didn't get burned they didn't learn is it good to get uh, this education in preverbal state i'm sorry what so you learn about fire when you know don't you cannot define it. How good it is for the for the for the hours because it hurts. It's painful. We re we don't need the words to it. That in fact, uh, a side point in that realm. One of the reasons why the Buddhist monks wear orange robes in the forest and everywhere else, but mostly in the early days in the forest, because it was the color of fire and animals would stay away from that color. They would associate the color of the robes with fire and, and not bother the monks. This is why they would wear the orange was because of that association. But it was only because those animals had had to deal with fire before. It wasn't a story, it wasn't verbal. They didn't go to, uh, to alligator school or to um, uh, lion school where it, it read in the lion's book, oh, orange is a color of fire and fire is dangerous. They didn't do it that way. Oh, no, they had to deal with forest fires or whatever like that. So it is pre-verbal. And most of the really important lessons that we learned, we learned before we were verbal. We learned a lot. All this, all this teaching is really preverbal. All this teaching is kind of psychophysiological. So Actually, that's, that's the problem with it. If, if I could do uh, what they had in Star Trek to mind meld, and I could hold your temples with my hands and go like that, and you become enlightened, I'd do it. But in fact, we have to transmit the Dhamma conceptually but then the idea is that people will unravel the conceptualizations and put it into reality for them so that they can practice it over and over again and get the good value out of it. It has to, it has to be clear, direct knowledge in order to extinguish delusion. Like, for example, um, you know, all uh, of our ancestors... But it doesn't have to be a great big clear, direct knowledge. Like, Whatever yeah, is like, happening right now, like if you recognize it all, oh, I don't have to think about Aunt Susie. I have clear direct knowledge. I don't have to think about her right now. I can sit here and be happy rather than thinking about my argument with her. So that's clear direct knowledge. 
there's a distinction between clear, direct, little knowledge over and over again versus clear, direct, great, big knowledge. Well, here, here's the here's the example that relates to um, seeing the mind clearly. So, you know, all of our ancestors, we used to used to look at a storm and believe that it was like angry gods that created the storm and they would develop fear and anxiety about that. So then they have rights and rituals so to control the fear had, and anxiety. Uh, they had fear and, then, and anxiety. Let me, let me finish. <laughs> no, because you've made a critical error. Okay, okay, well, can you correct there, the error when I finish the when, analogy? When, when the sky is doing its thing and they become afraid, now they have that fear and they make up the stories about it. Okay, that's the exactly stories didn't make them saying. afraid of the sky. They were afraid of the sky and they made up the story. You're saying the same thing I was saying. All right. <laughs> so they, they looked at the sky and they believed that, you know, the stories no, that developed were that they looked at gods. the sky and felt bad. Okay. Let's get the sequence of events going first, guys. Okay, don't, so they looked at the sky around. and they. And they felt, felt bad. Fear and developed stories from the fear. Then okay. they developed rights, rules, and rituals to control the fear. When we learned that it was uh, causes and conditions, natural elements that cause a storm, we no longer can look at a sky and personify it as gods. And in the same way, when we look at the mind and we understand its, its constituent uh, processes and how they function, we can no longer personify thinking, feeling, perception, and consciousness. Right. Okay. In the same way that we used to personify the sky, we personify our own minds. But when we get into yeah. a state of seeing the mind clearly and we get the clear, direct knowledge of how the mind functions, we extinguish the delusion uh, of identification, personification, possessiveness of the mental processes as well. And then you all sound of the, so the rights. Mahasi right now. Wow. You sound like you've been reading the Mahasi book all day today. I haven't read a single Mahasi book in my life. I'm just, I'm basing this off my own experience. Okay. Well, you're using a lot of language that they use. I don't know. I've never, I've never been interested in the Mahasi method. I've, I heard a little bit about it from a monk online, but uh, it sounded like too much thinking for me. <laughs> right. The noting sounded like really cumbersome for me. But okay. The only point I'm trying well, to make here is well, that, True knowledge okay. extinguishes delusion. That's the only point I'm making. It's true knowledge that causes the nibbana of delusion, the extinguishing of delusion. And I'm saying that there are degrees and kinds of true. It's it's the truth of of the situation at hand that extinguishes the delusion that arises from the misperception of that situation. And it might be a little thing. And they can uh -huh. deal with it right then. Or it could be a great big thing that might be longer lasting. And the biggest is is seeing is seeing ultimate reality and extinguishing all delusion all at once. That's the biggest um, thing. Okay. <laughs> That's where I think happen. you'll disagree with me. It ain't going to happen. No one does it like that. That's that's high in the sky to think that there. I mean, if something that big got you then it would probably have killed you also. Any wake up that's so big that it wakes someone up right out of their all of their hindrances all at one time, it's, it's almost like, look at the analogy of the guy walking into the gym. 
never been to the gym before, never been doing reps with one kilogram dumbbells. He walks all the way over and and does a bench press of, um, let us say, 200 kilograms. And he's dead. He killed all himself. All that's extinguished is desire and delusion. You're just left with a clear mind that's free of desire. There's nothing, there's nothing overwhelming about that. That's just like the freest... Give me an example. What kind of thing could happen to somebody that would completely wake them up? Could keep well, them out people, of every different kind of. Uh, um, it's it's seen it's seen the ultimate nature of reality. Lots of people's minds make contact with reality in that way, seeing reality so clearly that no delusion or desire is left reality? in the mind. Reality is vast. Just reality as it is. Not okay. the not the stories and the identifications to, and the delusions that we fill the mind with. Hang on a second. Anna, you ask about magical thinking. You're listening to it right now with him. Okay. I this think is it's magical thinking. Pride. I think Pardon? it's something about pride because when we think that we see the reality, somehow pride covers us and it's no way to escape it. Exactly. And it's kind of like from the and this is just it's not it's impossible to catch it's very it's very difficult to catch mm -hmm. but the buddha is talking about it in the sense of right here right now and, and that's the way i'm saying, talking about it no you're exactly talking about, a I'm talking about it. something will happen and all of a sudden everybody uh, one person is completely <laughs> free does not happen what i'm saying is when a mind sees reality as it is then what desire reality and delusion are you talking, you're, you're just okay. words without defining what you're talking about there are many 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 different realities so as a person sees this reality one at a time he can do something about it yes, but this is reality no is the reality that i'm talking about just this reality there's only one reality but when we get to the fourth jhana, can we see all realities or is it just impossible because we in the human body, no. if it's not even considered? It's, it's simply no, just it's reality. The world. the world is small. Our concept of the, of the world is vast, but they're just mental concepts. And it's seeing that your mind is filled with concepts, that is seeing reality is seeing okay. that your mind is filled with fictions. That is seeing reality. That's what I'm talking right. about. And then it's going to happen if, again, and you see it again, and it'll happen yeah, again, I mean, and you if see you it again. Say reality, and you think I'm you talking about it one time. You're saying, you're, you're promoting, that I can see all of reality one time and be completely cured. For, for some people that, whose attachments that, are loose. That is magical thinking. No, no I'm not saying yes. that that's... That's it I'm saying that for some people whose attachments are loose do one thing at one time or have one experience at one time and be completely free from all the hindrances. It's just not possible. Um, no, I didn't. I didn't say that that it you takes have one been repeating time. that over and over and over again. If you see, when you reality, see it enough, if you see it enough one time when you see it. And I'm saying, no, you got to see it over and over again and do something about it over and over again. Until well, yes, I agree with that. Skill. I agree okay. with that because then our conditioning is talking? deep. Why are you keep supporting a, a, a magical thought? Because you keep misunderstanding what I'm saying and I'm trying to make it clear. Okay, don't. Don't make it clear. Okay, that's fine. Okay, 
keep it with the point that it's okay that I do not buy the way you describe it. Yeah, that's okay. And every, yet we still agree. Every second we see new reality. Pardon? Every second or whatever, whatever it's time we one. see new reality. Exactly. Whatever uh, time frame that you want, whether it's one, five, ten, twenty seconds, maybe even a century. But the century, this century, is in reality completely different from the last century. But this 22nd period of time is completely different than the next 22nd period of time. And if we pay attention, we can see that it's different. That this breeze on my shoulder is not exactly the same breeze as the breeze on the other shoulder. Don Morado, if you and I were sitting next to each other on that porch and the trees were rustling at night and you thought there were ghosts out there and I knew there were no ghosts out there, you would be afraid and I wouldn't. That's all I'm talking about. No, there are ghosts out there and I'm not afraid of them. <laughs> Why do you think they don't exist? When I say seeing things as they are, I mean the mind that sees that there aren't ghosts there isn't afraid and the mind that believes that there are ghosts there is going to be afraid. It's just an example. Well, Okay, except that the word ghost here does not necessarily have fear built into it. That that's a different right. reality. Some I'm going to go ahead and accept that. Fear, I'm going to go ahead and accept that you won't accept anything I say to you. Well, um, the, it's not a matter of not saying anything or, or accepting anything, but rather it's a matter of getting our language correct so that other people can understand it because the language that you're using okay is well known, well understood, well believed, and is biting people in the ass and has for been centuries because so, so you're, 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 you're afraid that the way I'm expressing myself is going to confuse people. Yeah, well, it's confused okay. you. I'm not confused. Well, <laughs> it's, it's that's a matter of opinion. Uh. This is a problem. It's kind of going to one direction. It's not, it's just, this is a, I don't know. Yeah, no, it's okay. I mean, I think yeah. I think we communicate differently. That's all. Well, hi. <laughs> well, let us let us do a little bit of time of asking specific questions. Is okay. there just one reality or is reality multiple? Multiple. My wife just walked in. Hold on a second. Hi. hi. <laughs> um, Both, right? There is, there is seen, there is seen conceptualizing clearly. it. There is one. In there is seen clearly there, and there's seen unclearly. There is eye contact. That's a reality. There is ear contact. That's a reality. There are many, many different kinds of realities. And the question is, are we going to start paying attention to them rather than having the idea that I already know I don't have to look? I already know I don't have to look is the state that most people are in. And the, te and the teaching of the Buddha is look again and look again, investigate again, investigate again. Things are changing. This reality is not the same as that reality. There's a new reality every moment. Well, there's new fictions created every moment. 
Pardon? So it kind of feels like that uh, all this teaching is about dying. So what's the point of using this teacher for the for like to look at it as a as a life? It's a clear, clear direction to dying. This is kind of stages of dying. So we kind of letting right. go. And so what people... how we can redirect it to the life if we kind of moving to 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 dying? What the what? How you can explain life? through through the understanding of death. I mean, it is, it, that's what we're doing. And I well, guess we somehow need to, to know. Life it. and death, life and death, life and death. There are many different cycles. There's many different kinds of realities of life and death cycles, but always things are in cycles. This is what we mean by samsara. And if the samsara is up here, it's real that way. And when samsara is down here real, it's a different kind of real. And seeing the whole circle of them is also another kind of real. It depends upon how we can see things. And there's not one great big reality that as soon as we get a load of that one great big reality, because people have been getting a load of that one great big reality over and over and over again, calling themselves Guru Nanook and 10,000 other things. They can see all of that, but it does not uh, liberate humanity. Um, in, in hardly any examples at all. What is liberating is that we can do something about whatever the reality is right now. We can do something about it. We have the ability to change. That we can't count on, oh, I saw that in 1923, therefore I am free of it now. That's not possible. Well, you would have to see it. You would have to see it with every moment. Yeah, that's the whole point. A new moment, a new reality. You got to or see else you're it. just fixed on a memory. Exactly. That's the whole point. And so when that guy walks into there and in to that stove, he's going to remember not to put his hand on it. He's going to remember to do that. That's the whole point about Sati is to wake up and be here right now. And not worry about what realities I figured out last year. This is a new moment. Can I handle this moment well? And if I can handle this moment well, that'll be because I'm in the first jhana right now, and I can handle this moment well. But, but just because I handled this moment well doesn't mean I'm going to handle the next moment well. It does mean that because I can handle this moment well, I'm de developing the skills so that I got a better chance of handling the next moment well. But there's no guarantee there. I have to keep watching. Keep watching. Keep seeing the hindrances and throwing them out. That there's no way to deeply uproot it so that it never comes back. But rather, as soon as it shows up, I can whack it off. Like, for instance, an, um, an Arahat sees a, uh, a student walking up. The student is argumentative, won't give what the teacher says. As soon as the student walks up or while the student is walking up, the Arahant may think, oh, here comes that guy again. And then he says, never mind, I can handle him. And then he comes right back out of it and everything is cool. But an ordinary person, an ordinary Dhamma teacher, oh, here comes that guy again. And now I don't want to deal with him because I feel bad. So it's not that the Arahant doesn't have to ever put up with dumb students. The Arahant can put up with dumb students because he knows in that moment, this is a dumb student, I can handle him anyway. 
is something new every moment. Can you remember to handle this moment? And I only use the example of an Earhart because that's what everybody thinks about it in that way. A much better way of saying, can I get myself back into a state of satisfaction immediately after something that I perceive as dissatisfying? Can I check my dissatisfaction and come right back into satisfaction? Doesn't matter how deep it is. Doesn't matter how old it is or how much trauma it had at one time. It matters is, can I handle it right now when it comes up? And throw it out and come back into a state of, wow, we've got this made. Wow, I can handle all of that stuff. Yeah, I think I think um, I we agree on the moment to moment clear scene and satisfaction. And the only place where I disagree is that um, there are people rarely and that there are and then there is a point where where greed, hatred and delusion are extinguished permanently and the mind okay. stays in a permanent state of clarity. All right, go find those people. Me, I don't care about them. I have well, there's no Ramana Maharishi. Well, Ramana I don't Maharishi. know him. He's not here on the call with us. Oh, well, I know. I'm just saying that there are, you're saying that they don't exist. I'm saying they do I'm exist. I'm saying that I don't give a fuck. There's the Buddha. No, I'm saying <laughs> well, they don't, I don't I, give, I don't care whether they exist or not. I'm not pinning any of my hopes on the fact that those kind of people exist or not. But you said they don't exist. Well, they they only exist between your ears, but not between mine. You're the one who cares about them, and I don't. I'm much uh, more they're, interested they're, in can I handle this particular moment, not what gurus can I look up to to prove my. Well, point. their teachings are valuable in the same way that your teachings are valuable to your students. They have ways of communicating ah. that help people to get free of their Well, delusions. if they do, then they're teaching the kind of things that I'm teaching, and they're not teaching the kind of things that you're teaching in the sense of Ramamani or whatever his name was, doesn't go around saying, hey, I did it all at once, you can too, do it now. Wham! And you hit them in the face or slam a door in front of them. Well, that's kind of like what he said. <laughs> right. But he was he probably would say that you have to keep practicing. I don't know of any good teacher who doesn't say you got to keep practicing. Even piano teachers have to say to their students, you got to keep practicing. No one says, oh, if you slam your hands on that piano hard enough and break all of your knuckles, then you can play Shakespeare. I mean, uh, uh, Chopin. That doesn't happen. What about when they get to the play stage? You know, from the uh, practice, performance, and play, when they get into that mm -hmm. play stage, when the music is is in them, and they no longer have to think about it. Right, but you're saying that they got into the play step without ever doing any practice. I I didn't say that. You said that. Oh, you said oh. that. I said that. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, can you unsay it and say that in fact it does take a lot of practice? Well, of course. Yes. Well, of course it does. <laughs> I never and said it didn't. Yes, you did a dozen times or more. You're saying that it's a great big thing and then we're free from it completely. You're even mentioning names of guys who've done it like that. And now well, you're they, agreeing that no, they had to practice first. 
of course they did. Yeah. It's just, there's, so there's a moment with for them I don't care after about that. I don't care about that moment for my students. I care about, and my friends, I care about them practicing. And you're talking about in a way of, oh, maybe you don't have to practice because these guys have done it all at once and they didn't do all at once. They practiced too. I don't think I don't think they ever can finish practicing. I mean, they maybe get somewhere, but they cannot afford to finish, so they never complete. I guess right, that's exactly. So here's no way a question: it can be complete in this body? All right. So here's a question for you. Let us say a particular piece of music. Let us talk about it uh, with the example of Beethoven's Violin Concerto in D. And this guy has been practicing and practicing and practicing that over and over and over again. And now he's going to um, uh, give a concert in a foreign country. He gets on the airplane. He checks in his violin. He, re he gets to uh, the destination. The concert is tomorrow. No violin. It's got lost in shipment. Okay. So. Um, let us say then that the violin um, doesn't come. He misses a concert, maybe even uh, has to postpone another concert. And finally, the violin comes just before the next concert that he's going to be playing the uh, violin concerto. Do you think that he's going to go into that practice or into that performance without practicing that violin? He's not going to go over it one or two times the day before or actually hours before the performance. He's not going to go through it again and play it again. No, he's going to practice. Mm -hmm. Even though he's world-class musician, top of the line, best stuff in the world, he's still going to practice. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, then Erhot is going to do the same thing. When he sees that unhappy student come by, the Erhot's not going to say, oh, I don't want to deal with him. He's going to say, never mind, I can practice this now, too. And it's the, pra all the practice is fun. Yes, that's, that's, what drama that's, is. that's what the whole practice is, is that it's a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. And so there's no reason to even talk to students about, well, somebody did it and they got enlightened in a hurry because that's going to create jealousy. It's going to create uh, confusion and doubt. It's going to create all kinds of stuff in the students' mind, whether it actually existed or not. That in fact, those guys that you're claiming, who whichever list of guys that you're claiming that that happened to, I bet we can sit them down and talk them out of saying that. That it happened all at once. Because nothing happens all at once. Even death is a process. Also, there's so many different delusions uh, if you extinguish uh, one, there's another. Yeah, now you're conking. Now you're talking about it. Yes, we delete them one at a time as we see them. We're not going to see a great big reality out there, and then all of a sudden I can see all of my hindrances immediately. Oh, no. A really clear example of that is arguing, that people really, really like to argue. They want to be right. They want to get their way. And even when they're stuck in a Dhamma conversation, it turns into an argument. They still don't see that they're arguing. Okay, maybe if you can make it, if you can wake up to the fact that you argue about the Dhamma, 
then you can stop doing that. But that doesn't mean that that's going to teach you how to drive a jet plane. It's just teaching mm-hmm. you that you can look for when you're arguing with someone and stop arguing with them. One at a time that there's not going to be a whole bunch of stuff so that you see that you that you uh if you can see that you argued with someone, you're still going to get caught into arguments later. You can see it again and stop it then. That it's not possible for someone to see, oh, I'm in an argument and things are so bad, I'll never argue again. And then they never argue again. Oh, no, they're going to have to see those arguments over and over and over again and put each one of them to a stop. And pretty soon, the Arahat is so good at putting arguments to a stop, he doesn't even begin the argument because he put a stop to it before it started. But that takes practice. How? Takes How? practice. How? Huh? How? Stop arguing before it started. We're remembering that this guy is starting an argument and I don't have to argue with him. It's all in the Honeyball Sutta. Right, the proliferation. How, why, why Sariputta was so wise? Like, why they say that he was so wise, say he was kind, can, was able to count every drop in the rain? So I think that's exactly what we were talking about. Right no, now. not at all. That's but in fact, that kind, that, that's also done by the, um, here, here's an example of where it happened with the Buddha. In one of the places, it's, it uses the word loka vidu. And what that actually means is knower of the world. And that in the Vasudhimaga, they've gotten to the point that he, he knows the name of every fish in the ocean. That's not what knower <laughs> of the world means. Knower of the world means, ouch, I don't want anything to do with that world. That's what knower of the world means. It means stay out of it. But we have to remember, oh, that's world. I need to stay out of that. That's an argument. I can stay out of that. Pity party. Oh, I can see that. I can stay out of that. Oh, anger. I can stay out of that. But we got to be able to see it. Not in a big way. Because everybody can see anger in a big way. Everybody will agree that it's unwholesome to be angry. The question is not, can you see anger is unwholesome and then never anger again? No, you have to be able to see anger in as it comes up and stop it right then and there. In the, uh, in the Rahatisa Sutta, the, the Buddha says that you have to reach the end of the world to reach the end of the suffering, but then he defines the world as the body with its senses and perceptions. So uh-huh. he's essentially just right. saying you have to know how the body-mind fabricates, you know, all of its problems, right basically. now. Mm-hmm. How is doing it right now. Seeing it right now, and then we can finish it right now. That's the important point, is seeing it right now. Not seeing it two years ago, but right now. That if you the saw it two years ago, and you have to read. Is one mind moment. <laughs> That's the difference, is right now. Cool. If going back to the stove, if the guy puts his hand on the fire, he knows it, but that's just that's not going to prevent him from putting his hand on the fire ever again 
but it will help him to remember to not put his hand on the stove if he can remember, but he might not. It might take twice before he remembers to not put his hand on that stove. All right? But it's always remembering. This is the sati, to come back into the present moment and see that hindrance for what it is right now and throw it out right now. And you might have to do that again because you saw it that time. In full glory, you saw it and you put a stop to it. Next time, you've got the skill, you can see it again and put a stop to it. And pretty soon, you got so good that you can see it coming and you put a stop to it before it even arrives. And that, that was skill. the point I was making earlier about, about the addict in recovery is, is that they, they have to have those moments of clarity over and over and over again to mm-hmm. uproot those underlying tendencies that keep leading them back into the addiction and needing the recovery. Right. And the absence of alcohol would work. In other words, if he never saw another drop of alcohol, then what else does he need other than the fact that he just doesn't have it and he'll never see it again? No, the issue is is that there are liquor stores and he's going to have to remember when he passes by a liquor store to not go in there. That's the thing. We can't say that we're going to eliminate all the liquor stores out of somebody's mind. We're going to have to really deeply implant, I don't go there. I don't mm-hmm. go there. And sometimes we wind up standing at the counter, paying for a bottle, and then we wake up and say, wait a minute, I don't really want that. Yeah, you can keep the money. I don't want the alcohol, and we walk out of the store without it. We can do it that way so long as we get out. But we have to remember to get out in the moment that we're in the store or going there. It's not a matter of, oh, well, that, let's burn that liquor store down and then I'll never drink again. No, that's not going to solve it. Burning down the liquor store because there's going to be other liquor stores. You got to burn down the desire, not the liquor store. <laughs> ah, but the burning down of the desire is because there is no liquor and we can remove the liquor and then the desire will fade away. The only reason why there's desire for liquor is because of the knowledge of the availability of liquor. The example that I would use is is that here I am in the really, really back of the what? 20 minute walk down those pathways to get to the front of of the temple just to have food. And the answer is a 45 minute walk it's too much. I'm not that hungry. <laughs> and so I don't go. All right. So if the liquor store is that far away and it's so much trouble, why bother? So let's keep our hindrances at bay, which means keep them at a distance. How far distant can we keep the hindrances? So you don't think that somebody could see the dukkha in drinking so, to such a degree that they no longer desire it at a certain point? But they well, see how much harm is done. Right. But that's the reason, your point there, is the reason why Alcoholics Anonymous fail. Well, <laughs> huh? You don't think AA works for people? 
Well, I'm about to give the example of where it fails. Okay. All right. Nobody it, gets in light. <laughs> it fails when the guy who goes to AA is ordered to go there by the court. This has gotten quite famous. Why? Because mm -hmm. the guy who was ordered to go to AA by the court, the guy has not seen the danger in the alcohol yet. He's just mm -hmm. going along because he's got to. For him, the danger is going against the judge because that's really dangerous. Mm -hmm. Okay, so he sees the danger in going against the judge, but he doesn't see the danger yet in the alcohol. If he is really, really lucky, he will find the danger to the alcohol in the AA. But generally, Alcoholics Anonymous want people who have hit rock bottom. That's where the term comes from. Hitting rock bottom means that people recognize, finally recognize alcohol is dangerous. And then, then they get angry and that is stuck. Not going anywhere. They get very angry, mm -hmm. and they think with the anger. They cannot go through it. Right, but they 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 get angry because you keep telling them something they don't want to hear. <laughs> Why? Well, they have not yet seen the danger in the alcohol. That's the first noble truth. Mm -hmm. But seeing the danger in the alcohol does not solve the alcoholism because the alcohol is going to come up over and over and over again and every time they have to remember this is dangerous it's it's dangerous it's unsatisfying it's right. uncontrollable the pleasure is impermanent and, and <laughs> therefore it's better to not do it right now okay that's the knowledge that liberates Right, that's the knowledge that liberates right now. But the original knowledge of knowing that alcohol is dangerous is not liberating in and of itself. But you have to reapply that knowledge that alcohol is dangerous in the very moment when you need it most, like when somebody's about to hand you a cocktail. Mm -hmm. So what do you do with that cocktail? You carry it around the way that everybody else is, but you don't drink it. You just hold it in your hand because you know that stuff dangerous. Maybe we can find a place to set it down over there. But we have to keep remembering that it's dangerous because the alcoholic is likely to hold have that uh, alcoholic beverage in his hand and absentmindedly without even knowing what he's doing. He starts taking a sip of it. All right. But. He wouldn't do that if that if he wasn't in that party. If there was no alcohol in his hand, then it's easier. So this is what we mean by getting ourselves into seclusion is getting away from the things that cause us trouble because it's a whole lot easier to deal with them when we're no when we're nowhere near them. This well, that's is a smart, one of the that's a smart way of doing it. <laughs> mm -hmm. That's why the Buddha have. I mean, this is why the Sangha and the watch and all of that is to get these guys away from that alcohol or those women or the parties or uh, the banks to be robbed and all of that stuff. Let's get ourselves off into the woods, get some seclusion. And then things are much easier to deal with. I got to I got to get off the call at 10 o'clock just to let you know. So just in one minute. All right. Well, I think that we've done justice to this call. This has been about two and a half hours. I've really appreciated and enjoyed our argument about 
thing. Um, I wasn't have I wasn't arguing with anybody. <laughs> all right. Okay. Okay. In my place, it's already one a.m. Thank you, guys. Thank you, guys. Did, did you get your question answered, Anna? Right. Okay. Good. Yes. Good. Thank you. Thank you. Excellent. It's called a dialectic. <laughs> All right, guys, we'll see you later. Thank Good you, guys. Much. Okay, bye bye. <laughs> mm.